Great. Well, it's uh, so lovely to see you. While, while we've paused our vision fund giving this weekend and are thinking more about how we can help people in Ukraine, uh, something to pray about is that we do have, at the moment, £350,000 in grant applications out and pending. So in terms of things to pray for, uh, it'd be great to pray that some of those grants come back favorably, which would help us, obviously, with what we're doing with the building at Alder Road. So uh, please do keep that in your prayers as well. Okay, let me ask you a question. I wonder where your emotions have been this week. Where have your emotions been? Our, our emotions are a double-edged sword, aren't they? It's uh, through our emotions that we can give the best of ourselves, connecting with people, expressing ourselves, but also through our emotions that we can reveal the worst in ourselves. Uh, I was with a friend of mine, a good friend of mine recently, who's the kind of person who normally channels their emotions in a way which brings real life and light into uh, a room, but uh, something had happened which had upset him, and uh, his emotions responded badly, and for the rest of the day made, the rest of, uh, made life miserable for the rest of us because of the way his uncontrolled emotions were being channeled. And it's easy to see that when that happens with a friend, but probably if we're honest, all of us can be like that to some degree as well, that our emotions can be healthy and helpful to us and to others, or they can be destructive and damaging to us and to others. Kathy Keller says, pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots, and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Such a powerful quote. Cuts right to the heart, doesn't it? Pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots, and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Today we're looking at the story of Saul, the first king of Israel, the rise and fall of Saul. And I think a lot of the downfall of King Saul was connected to his uncontrollable emotions. And there are lessons in that for each one of us. Let me just give us a recap on where we've got to. We're currently at the moment doing a series called A House for My Name. We're teaching through the whole of the Old Testament, giving an overview of the Old Testament, saying about how God's purpose is to build a house, a place to dwell with his people. And last week, we were looking at how corruption often overtakes leadership. We were looking at two fathers and their two sons. Eli, who was priest with his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are wicked men, and as a result, God removes them from the priesthood. He calls Samuel as a priest, a prophet, a faithful leader. Samuel fulfills that role. But Samuel has two sons called Joel and Abijah. And they are like Eli's sons, like Hophni and Phinehas. And they become corrupt as well. And in response to that, the people of Israel come to Samuel and say, Your sons are no good. Give us a king. Give us a king to lead us. And Samuel says to them, Well, the Lord is going to give you a king but he's not going to be the king you're looking for. He warns them what will happen. He warns them that a king isn't going to be just good news. And Saul is that king. And this story is told in 1 Samuel chapters 9 through 15. It gives us a picture of the rise and fall of Saul. So let's first think about some characteristics of Saul. First thing is that Saul looks like a king. Here we are introduced to Saul, 1 Samuel 9 verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. 
It's quite unusual for the Bible to give physical descriptions of somebody. The Bible doesn't normally describe what people looked like. Uh, And so we should take note when the Bible does. And there are a handful of characters the Bible describes in some way, and Saul is one of them. And Saul is described as being the most handsome guy in the country and taller than everybody else. And when I think about what Saul looked like, I imagine he looked like something like Mario Toji, the uh, England back row rugby player who just looks like a king, looks like a king. He's so tall, athletic, handsome. He's the kind of guy that all the rest of us guys wish we looked more like him, and all the women wish the guys looked more like him. Um, <laughs> Just, he just looks like a king, doesn't he? Magnificent. You see him playing rugby, just such an awesome specimen. And the description of Saul is a bit like that. <laughs> the best looking, got a bit of a man crush on the <laughs> Maro Toji. My daughter's looking very embarrassed. Uh, Saul probably looked, he's like that. He was taller than anybody else and better looking than anybody else. And When the Bible does describe people in those kind of ways, it's a sign of God's favor that, we all know that, that if you are favored through the genetic lottery of life and the grace of God to be, look like Mario Toji rather than the rest of us, there is a blessing in that. There's a favor in that. But also there's a potential danger. And we see that with other people who are described in the Bible in similar terms. We read that Joseph was a handsome young man. And we know that gets him into trouble because Potiphar's wife is drawn to him and tries to get get him into bed with her and all the stuff that happens to Joseph as a consequence. Uh, David, who comes after Saul as king, he's also described in similar terms as being handsome, good-looking. And we know that David got into all kinds of trouble himself in terms of his sexual behavior. So uh, even as Saul is described as being particularly good-looking, particularly stand-out physically, There's perhaps something of a warning about how things are going to go for him. But he looks like a king. The second thing we see about Saul is that he is a faithful son. Next verse. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha. But they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim. But the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. What we get a picture of here is that Saul is different from the sons of Eli and from the sons of Samuel. We get a picture of a son who is concerned for his father's property, He's concerned that he retrieves the donkeys that have been lost. He's concerned about his father's instructions. He's obedient. He does what his father asks in seeking after the lost donkeys. He's also concerned about his father's feelings. Gets to the point where he realizes that his dad's going to be more worried about him than he is about the donkeys. And this little cameo here of Saul searching for the donkeys does give us a picture of a son who is faithful, who is different from Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and different from Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah. Saul is a faithful son. And then the third thing we learn about Saul is that he is humble. Verse 21 of 1 Samuel 9. Saul is looking for these donkeys, and he encounters Samuel. And to Saul, it just seems like a random event. But Samuel, because he's a prophet, he knows this is going to happen, knows that Saul is the one who's meant to be anointed as king, tells Saul what's going to happen. Saul answered, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? 
And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? And then Samuel gathers the people of Israel together to recognize Saul as king. When Samuel had made all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. What we get is this picture of Saul as a young man who has no expectation that he is going to become leader, going to become king of Israel, and doesn't seem to have any desire for it either. He seems someone who is surprised by it. There seems to be a humility about him at the moment where he's going to be recognized, where God is choosing first the whole tribe, then a clan, and then the family, and finally Saul himself, rather than being there with a t-shirt on saying, yes, the king is here, Saul is hiding in the supplies. There seems to be a, 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 a humility about him at this point. He's certainly not a pushy young man expecting to be given this position. So we see this about Saul, that he looks like a king. He's a faithful son. He's humble. And then Samuel anoints him as king, and Saul starts off great. First thing he does is to lead the people into battle, which he wins. And then uh, those who are following Saul look at those who weren't so keen on Saul and say, let's sort out the ones who didn't like Saul because Saul has proved himself to be king. And Saul says, no, we're not going to do vengeance. We're going to be magnanimous, generous. This isn't the time for vengeance. This is the time for celebration. He's, He's generous. He's magnanimous. And he follows Samuel in worship of the Lord. He allows Samuel to lead as Samuel leads Saul and the people in worship of God. It's all looking so good. But things begin to change quickly. We turn over to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel and we see sin starting to creep in. We see Saul starting to become, as Samuel had warned, Saul starts to become like the other kings of the other nations starts to become corrupt. And there are three strikes which are described, which in chapters 13 to 15 of 1 Samuel, which Saul does. Three strikes and three strikes and he's out. The first strike is that Saul assumes an authority that is not his. It's a critical moment in the history of the nation. The Philistines again are attacking the people of Israel and the Israel army is in disarray and terror. And what the people need is the help of God. They need God. And Samuel, as the great prophetic priestly leader of the nation, is the one who is to lead them into intercession before God, sacrificing before God, and seeing God's help come. But Samuel is delayed or delaying for some reason, doesn't come to the battlefield, and Saul takes matters into his own hands, and he makes a sacrifice to God to try and bring God's blessing into the situation. And we might read that story and say, what's the deal? What's the, situ- what's the problem? But there's a lot that could be said about that. But what we need to see is that kings were not meant to assume the role of priests. In the nation of Israel, these were separate roles. The, the priesthood was given to the priestly tribe of Levi and particular families within that tribe and particular men then served as priests from those people and they had a particular calling and anointing from God to lead the people in worship. That wasn't the king's role, wasn't his responsibility. 
And uh, Saul here takes, assumes an authority that isn't his. And when Samuel appears, he then rebukes Saul for this. And Saul seems to then blame the people. So it's because they were in panic. I had to do this. And we can see that Saul sins here because he's no longer submitting to the word of God or the timing of God as he should. Instead, there's a sense that he's trying to, trying to be in control of everything, trying to manipulate things, trying to kind of seize things in a way which actually he wasn't meant to. He assumes authority that isn't his. The second strike is when he sins against his son Jonathan and against the army. Again, another story when the Philistines are attacking the people of Israel. And again, the people of Israel are right on the back foot. And Jonathan, famous story, in a moment of incredible bravery and trusting God, says to his armor bearer, come on, let's go over and see what the Lord does. And Jonathan and his armor bearer alone go and confront the Philistines. And immediately the Philistines start to fall between them. Saul and the army see what's going on and decide to join in, but Saul foolishly makes a foolish command, 1 Samuel 14, 24. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. This is a foolish command. If you're fighting in a battle, you need to be sustained, you need food, you need to eat. And so Saul actually damages his army because he doesn't allow them to eat. And then things go from bad to worse because Jonathan hasn't heard the command of his father. He finds some honey and eats it. And then Saul threatens to kill Jonathan, the one who is responsible for the victory that is being won. And we can see that Saul sins here because he makes a kind of a rash, self aggrandizing declaration. He, he's lost his former humility. He's kind of putting all the focus towards him. No one can eat until I have avenged myself on my enemies. Never mind the fact that it was because of Jonathan's faith and faithfulness that the battle was being won. Never mind the fact that the troops needed to eat. There's a sinfulness against the army he's meant to lead and against his very son. And then the third strike is when Saul fails to carry out a direct instruction from God. God speaks and says that a judgment is to be carried out against the Amalekite people. And uh, if we had time, we could get into why that was and what that looked like. But just, let's just part those questions to one side and stick with the, the story and what it has to say to us. Rather than doing what had been commanded, Saul takes some of the best of what the Amalekites had. It was all meant to be done away with, but Saul takes some of the best and brings it back to the camp. Once again, he's confronted by Samuel, and once again, he blames the people. They did it. They took the stuff. They wanted it. And here again, we see sin in Saul's life. He's sinning in that he's failing to obey God. He's sinning in that he's failing to take the responsibility that he should, and he's shifting the blame onto his people, onto the people of God. Now, this is a very different man from the obedient son who went looking for his father's donkeys. The, the humility, the obedience has gone. And it seems that Saul is squandering both his natural qualifications and gifts. He looks like a king. And he's squandering the call that God has placed in his life. Who were you, Saul? Picked out, anointed, recognized as king by the Lord. 
and it seems that his emotions are just all over the place. Saul had looked like a king, but he becomes entitled. Saul had been a faithful son, but he sins even against his own son. He'd been humble, but now he's arrogant. And this leads to a damning indictment. Samuel confronts him, 1 Samuel 15, 22, and says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. To obey is better than sacrifice. It's a tragic story. Two weeks ago, we uh, got a new member of our household. Uh, Georgina, our oldest daughter, uh, bought a new puppy. We've got an old Whippet Jet, and we now have a young Whippet, Goose. And uh, the old Whippet Jet is not very happy about the young (laughs) Whippet Goose. Jet's just too old to appreciate a new puppy in the house. Now, the thing about... A dog, if any of you got dogs, the things you'll know is that what you really want in a dog is obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. You want obedience in the dog. You want the dog to learn that it needs to go outside to have a pee. You want the dog to learn that it can chew the things you give it to chew, but it's not meant to chew your furniture or your shoes. You want the dog to learn that when you take it for a walk, it's not meant to pull you off your feet, but walk nicely at heel. You want the dog to learn these things. You want it to be obedient because if a dog is not obedient, it causes a lot of stress. For a dog to be a pleasure rather than a pain, the dog needs to be obedient. If any of you have had disobedient dogs, you know how stressful that can be. An obedient dog is a different story altogether. So what we want for Goose is obedience. It's a high priority if he's going to be a successful member of our household. Lots of great things, lots of fun things about having a puppy. We're loving having them around, but we're working on obedience. Now, when we think about this in light of what Samuel says to Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. The issue here is more than just doing what you're told. With dogs, that's part of the deal. It's a conditioned response. The dog is trained and it learns that if it needs to have a wee, it just has to go outside. And if you tell it to sit, it just does it on on reflex because dogs get conditioned to respond how you train them to respond. That's not what is being looked for here with Saul, and it's not what the Lord is looking for with us. The issue here is an issue of the heart. It's about desires. It's about rightly directed emotions. And we can see that in what Samuel says to Saul. Samuel says to Saul, rebellion is like the sin of divination, arrogance like the evil of idolatry. What, what are, uh, Saul was guilty of rebellion and arrogance. What are divination and idolatry? They're, it's about putting your trust in things that cannot actually rescue us. It's the, it's the old, it's the original sin. It's turning away from trust in the living God to put our trust in other things. It's what Saul did. He'd started humble but became arrogant. He started obedient but became rebellious. He started off as a good king but now he's become just like the kings of the other nations. No more trusting God. And as Saul rejects God, God in turn rejects him as king. 
Now, how did it come to this? How, how did Saul rise and then fall in the way that he did? seems to me that much of Saul's problem was about uncontrolled emotions. He was impetuous and angry and entitled. And as we read further on in the story, we see he was sulky and, 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 and grumpy a lot of the time as well. He seemed to have uncontrolled emotions. Emotions ran away with him and got him into trouble. Now, we all know what that's like. I know what that's like. I know what it's like when my emotions run away with me and get me into trouble. And Saul's emotions ran away with him and got him into trouble. But that just reveals a deeper issue. There's a sin beneath the sin. Kathy Keller again, pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. Saul had some obvious emotional sins, his arrogance, his presumption. But his idols were clinging to those emotions. His idol was that he was making himself God. He was wanting to do everything his own way. He was wanting to be in control of everything. And if his will was ever in any way thwarted, he would become angry or sulky or resentful. And that's tragic when you think about what Saul could have been. Think about how he started. He looked like a king. And he was a faithful son, and he was a humble man, and he was anointed by God. And think of all that he could be, but he had uncontrollable emotions to which his idols got attached, and by which he was dragged down to his own ruin and destruction. Now, let's illustrate this by looking at a passage in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, a familiar passage. In this passage, the Apostle Paul describes the contrast by living according to the way of the flesh, the, the sinful nature of humanity, comparing that to living by the Spirit of God, living in idolatry versus living for God, living in a way which is healthy rather than living in a way which is destructive. This is what it says, Galatians 5 verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Apostle Paul isn't afraid to spell things out. He says, the sins of the flesh are obvious, full stop, and this is what they are. They're obvious, you should know what they are, but I'm going to also tell you what they are. And he provides an all-encompassing vice list here, which is divided into four kind of types of fleshly living, sinful living. The first one is to do with inappropriate physical indulgence, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. These things often connected to our, our sexual behavior. Fleshly way of living. The second group of sins is Idolatry and witchcraft. What are idolatry and witchcraft? Really, it's about seeking knowledge which we shouldn't or putting our trust in things which we shouldn't. The third group of sins, the longest list he provides, is really describing selfishness, dissensions, factions, envy, jealousy, fighting to be top dog. And then he gives a kind of a catch-all group of sins as well. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Sins of a lack of self-control. These things are obvious, he says, and they are fleshly. They're contrary to the way of the Spirit. These are issues of character. But they're also very much issues of the emotions. If we sin in these ways, 
We're giving way to our base emotional impulses. And these things are also obviously counter to the way that the Spirit of God would work in us, and they end up being destructive. These are the kind of things that Saul succumbed to. Saul succumbed to these kind of sins. He succumbed to idolatry, no longer trusting in the living God. He succumbed to hatred and fits of rage and selfish ambition. He, he, he lost self-control. He displayed uncontrollable emotions to which his idols clung and by which he was dragged down and rejected as king. Saul was told he was rejected as king. Now, there's a parallel warning here for us. I warn you, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingship was taken from Saul because he gave in to this kind of fleshy living. We're warned, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you live this way. But something better is expected of us. Next verse. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep, with, keep in step with the Spirit. There is a better way to live. And this is what leads to life. This is what leads to health. And the question to ask ourselves is, what place do you want to live in? This series is called A House by Name. It's about God building a house to dwell with his people. What house do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a house? which is characterized by immorality, unfaithfulness, characterized by drunkenness, characterized by anger, fits of rage, discord. Is that the kind of house in which you want to live? Or do you want to live in a house which is characterized by love and joy and peace and by patience and kindness? Where do you want to live? Where, in the house of your own heart. What do you want that to be like? Do you want your heart to be a, a place which is full of dissension and anger and Rivalry, or do you want your heart to be a place which is full of peace and joy and kindness? And the town in which we live, what do we want BCP to be like? Do you want BCP to be a place which is full of immorality and anger and conflict? Or do we want our town to be a place where we see the love, the joy, the peace of God being displayed because of the witness of his people? Where, what house do you want to live in? Now Saul could have lived in the house of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, but he chose to live in the house of idolatry and anger and jealousy and fits of rage. It's a tragic story. He failed to display the fruits of the Spirit. He, he started so well, ended so badly, and so much of that was because of his uncontrollable emotions. Let's not let that be true of us. And the good news, this isn't just like training Goose the dog. There's a transformation which happens to us when Christ gets hold of us. Things are different for those who belong to Christ. There's a, we're called to violent warfare against the acts of the flesh. Crucify the desires and the passions of the flesh. There is no action more violent than crucifixion. No 
action more violent than crucifixion. So when we attempted to fall into sexual impurity, debauchery, hatred, all the rest, what do we do? We're to crucify those things violently. We're We're not called to be insipid. We're not called to be passionless. We're called to be passionate in nailing sinful passions which would destroy us. Crucify them. Submit your emotions to Christ. Do some heart work. Pull up your emotions. Have a look at the roots. I've been doing some of that this week. and Even yesterday, as I was preparing this message, I kind of lost control of my emotions at one point with a member of my family. I thought, well, that's a great illustration for a sermon. <laughs> let's, do, let's pull up our emotions. Let's look at the roots. What idols are clinging there? What idols need to be smashed, crucified, killed? And the really good news is that Christ has already won this battle for us. See what it says. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. Have. It's not might, potentially, could. No, have crucified the flesh. The reality is we come to Jesus. We put our trust in him. We look at the finished work of the cross, what Christ has done. At the cross, Jesus was nailing the acts of the flesh, killing those sins which means that they no longer have power over us, which means that we can pull them up, look at them, and smash them again. Now, how do we do that? How do we live? How do we not make the mistake of Saul? How instead do we live in the good of all that Christ has done with us? What it says here is keep in step with the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Christian, you live by the Spirit, so walk like it. You know what it's like if you walk with somebody that you love or a close friend and how easily you can just walk in step. You don't have to instruct one another. You don't have to plan it. You don't have to give instructions like the army, left, right, left, right. No, you just naturally fall into pace together. There's an ease about it and there can be a, then a, a conversation flows because you're walking in step with one another. It's very uncomfortable if you're walking with somebody and you're not in step with them, if they're racing ahead and you have to keep trying to catch up or if they're dragging behind. That's uncomfortable. We can get out of step with the Spirit. And when you're out of the step with the Spirit, if you're honest, you'll know it. The trouble is that if you are, you can get used to being out of step with the Spirit. And that seems to be what happened to Saul. He got out of step with the Spirit and he got used to that place, to his own ruin. Let's be those who keep in step with the Spirit. Let's heed the warning of, Paul's, of Saul's life, of his rise and of his fall, of his squandered gifts and opportunities. And, and let's listen to what the Spirit is saying to us. Let's be those who celebrate that Christ has crucified our sinful fleshly desires. He has empowered us to live the way of Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all the rest. Let's, let's, let's keep in step with the Spirit. Let's build a house where we really want to live. Where there's life and health rather than death and destruction. Let's stand and uh, pray together. I'd love to pray for us that we would have a fresh anointing from God. It might be that you're here and you don't yet know Jesus I'd invite you just to open your heart to him and say, Jesus, if you're real, make yourself known to me. Come and build a house in my life. And for those of us who do know Christ, let's, let's pray. I'm sure that there are a whole bunch of people this week 
who've had moments or maybe extended times when your emotions have been uncontrolled, where emotions have not served you, where they haven't blessed you, where they need to be brought back under the authority of Christ. If that's you, respond to the grace and the kindness of Jesus to work in your hearts and let's all of us ask for the Spirit to anoint us in power empower us again that we might walk in step with him personally and corporately and display to those around us love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithness, gentleness, and self-control. Let's pray. Spirit of God, I do pray that you would come now and fall upon us afresh. Thank you, Jesus, that because of what you've done, we have been set free from the power of sin that Jesus at the cross, you crucified these things. You have dealt with them. And so, Lord, I ask that you'd help us to be honest as well, where we can find on the roots of our emotions, we can find idols beginning to cling. I pray, Lord, if there's idols clinging onto the roots of our emotions now, I pray that you would give us grace and courage, passion to crush them, cut them off. Let us not mistake, make the mistake of Saul, squander what is ours. Jesus, we want to be those who do lay hold of our full inheritance in your kingdom. Lord, we want to live in a house which isn't full of hatred and discord and unfaithfulness and all the rest. We want to live in a house which is full of the life that comes from walking with you. So Spirit of God, come and minister to us now. Bring healing for those who need healing. there needs to be repentance let that come that there might be fresh freedom and lightness of spirit come minister to us oh God we bless your name Amen